Thank you for listening to the Mutual Audio Network. Please don't turn that dial. The following audio drama is rated PG 13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Magic and magical people, the unnatural order is all around us. There are white witches, black witches, demons, vamps, werewolves, shapeshifters, ghosts. It's a protoplasmic party of creature features out there. But unless you know where to look, you won't find them. I know where to look. My name is Harry Strange. She's passed on. Oh dear me! I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Thank you. It was rather sudden. She was buried only a few hours ago. Were you a friend of Mom's? Oh yes. You're her daughter. One of them. My sister Loretta is here too. I'm so sorry for the both of you. May I? Have a telephone, please. I beg your pardon. You mean use the phone, don't you? No, I want it. You're you're choking me. I know. Give me that phone, Beverly. Oh. Ah! Beverly! Oh my God! You. What are you doing? Get out of this house. <clears throat> Hello, police! I need help quickly. My sister, my poor sister. I was trying to decide what ringtone would be most annoying to use on my new cell phone when Loretta Poole called the office. She told me a Reader's Digest version of what had happened and asked for my assistance. I really had no interest in taking the case. I couldn't find Carmen. Finney was missing, and Lieutenant Johnson wasn't returning my calls. I changed my mind about the pool matter, however, when I took a quick look at my checkbook and realized it was as empty as a parched vampire's latest blood donor. I left the office and went to meet Loretta at Mercy Hospital. Where an ambulance had taken her sister following the odd attack at their late mother's home. Loretta Poole. Y- yes. I'm Harry Strange. Thank you for coming so quickly. You're welcome. How's your sister? I don't know yet. The doctors are looking her over now. They're pretty sure she has a concussion, and maybe a cracked rib or two. You said the old lady grabbed Beverly by the throat and tossed her into the living room onto a coffee table, like she was a rag doll. Then the old woman calmly walked into the house with her cane, yanked the phone out of the wall, and left with it. She stole your mother's landline telephone. She did. Not her cell phone. Mom didn't own one. She never even bought an answering machine. I called nine one one and you on Bev's cell. Those landline phones are relics. A lot of people don't even have a house phone anymore. 
I could understand stealing a cell phone, but why? I've been wondering that too, but she took it anyway. Ripped it out of the wall like the Incredible Hulk. She sounds like one strong senior citizen. And she did all this with one hand while holding her cane in the other. Do you have any idea who she was? None. Might Beverly know? It's possible. Bev was talking to her a bit before. She may have mentioned her name. Where did the Hulk go after taking the phone? She drove away. Did you see the make of the car? The plate? I'm afraid not. Bev had some bad cuts on her head from landing on that table. I was trying to stem the bleeding. Can you help us, Mr. Strange? I know you deal with unusual crimes. I've heard that you're tougher than the average private eye. You could say that. How do you know about me? I work in the Desmond building, down the street from your office. I don't know who this old lady is, but I can't let her get away with what she did to Bev. Miss Poole? Yes? I'm Dr. Poston. How is Beverly? She's stable, though pretty well banged up. She has a mild concussion and two badly cracked ribs. She will heal, but it will take time. Is she conscious? Yes, though we've given her some pain medication. I expect that she'll be dropping off shortly. She needs her rest. Doc, my name is Harry Strange. I'm a private eye working for the family. May we speak with your patient? Is it really necessary? It is. She may know the identity of the woman who attacked her. Very well. But please try to keep it as brief as possible. Loretta and I walked into her sister's room. We were greeted by enough blinking lights that I thought I was on the bridge of the Enterprise. Beverly lay on a bed in the center of many pieces of medical equipment. She was conscious, but looked like she was dropping off to sleep fast. Wiping away tears, Loretta walked over to her sister's bedside. Bev? Can you hear me? Mm. Do you know the old woman's name? Mm. My purse? What do you want with... Paper? Is that it? Mm. You want to write down her name? Mm. Here, hon. We'll find her. You get some sleep. In shaky penmanship, the note read, Emily Watson, friend of Mom's? Since Loretta had mentioned that the old lady with the kung fu grip had driven off, the logical place to start looking for her was at the DMV. My DMV contact showed us the mugshots of the eleven Emily Watsons on file. On the sixth photo, Loretta yelled out, That's her! I told Loretta to go back to her sister's hospital room while I went to visit Emily Watson. Yes? I'm looking for Emily Watson. Are you now? Yes. My name is Harry Strange. You some kind of cop? Private investigator. What do you want with Emily? I just want to talk with her. Are you her husband? I am. Talk to her about what? I have reason to believe that she may have been involved in a crime. <laughs> you have to be kidding. No, sir. I wouldn't be wasting your time with jokes. May I please speak with her? I'm afraid that's impossible. Why is that? She's had a stroke and lost the power of speech. The doctors aren't sure if it will come back. I'm sorry to hear that. 
She already walks with a cane. Now, who knows? Maybe a walker? It's been a long couple of weeks. Weeks? She had her stroke weeks ago? Yeah, about two. She's been up at St. Mary's Hospital ever since. Does that take her out of the running as your crime suspect? I would say so. Good, because I was just on my way to see her. What's that damage on your kitchen wall? Someone broke into the house while I was at the hospital and ripped the old phone right off the wall. Jeez, people nowadays, can you beat that? No, but I think I can tie it. Uh, What's that? Nothing. I think he got our cell phones, too. I haven't been able to find them since. But I showed him. How? I had the service deactivated on both of them. Whoever heisted those phones won't be making any calls on my dime. My talk with Mr. Watson led me to an inescapable, though fantastic theory. We were dealing with a double of his ailing wife, one that had somehow been endowed with incredible added strength, enough to toss Beverly Pool many feet through the air with ease. But why the telephone thefts? That piece of the puzzle I still couldn't figure out. I drove back to the hospital to share my idea with Loretta. I saw Loretta down the hall from her sister's room and called out to her. She approached very close to me, and I soon noticed the unmistakable feeling of a gun barrel pressed into my gut. She ordered me to move, and I did as I was told. I learned a long time ago not to argue with a woman, especially an armed woman. On her instructions, we got into the elevator and headed to the hospital's parking garage, no doubt leaving the real Loretta Poole at her sister's bedside. With the gun pointed at my head, I drove the city streets, following the directions the person riding shotgun gave me. All my attempts at small talk failed to give me any chance to disarm her and save myself from an injury that would take even me out of the game for some time. I parked the car outside of a boarded-up factory. We got out and walked through the factory's front doors to quite a sight. Several people were waiting for us, probably around two dozen. They all stood motionless as though waiting for instructions. One white-haired woman with a cane I took to be Emily Watson's duplicate. Banks of computers lined the walls. In the center of the room, alongside one lone computer terminal, was what looked like a huge glass beaker, easily twice my height. The reddish glop inside of it was hissing and spitting, generating a heat that made the whole room border on stifling. I could feel my shirt starting to cling to me as sweat rolled down my back. All the while, Loretta's duplicate never put down her gun. Well, well, well. Harry Strange. The shapely young brunette who slowly and, to me, suggestively, walked out from behind the enormous beaker and towards me did things to a white lab coat that I never imagined possible. I was so happy when I heard Loretta Poole had hired you. You mean the real Loretta Poole, not this big bad mama. I see you've deduced what I'm doing here. It's cloning, isn't it? Yes. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Melanie Chase. Late of MIT? You've heard of me. I'm honored. Don't be. The article I read said that MIT dismissed you for being, well, nuts. (laughs) That's the liberal media for you. 
The powers that be dismissed me because they couldn't understand my theories and my experiments. The big boys couldn't deal with the fact that a mere female had bested them and developed a militarily lucrative plan. Cloning? With a twist. Not only can I clone someone with ease, but I can add whatever faculties I wish to my clones to improve upon the originals. In the case of Mrs. Watson, the addition of great strength has made her a formidable collector. The telephones. Exactly. She even managed to pocket Loretta Poole's cell phone during her visit to their late mother's home this morning. That was an unexpected bonus. What's with the phone thefts? They're everywhere. Cell phones, smartphones, even old-fashioned landlines. And most of them are filthy. Very few people ever think to clean the mouthpieces of their phones, which leads to a rich harvest for me. DNA? Exactly. No phone has failed me yet. Did all of these duplicates come from telephone DNA? These and others. Many of my creations are out in the city now, gathering more material for me. I'm going to take a wild guess that you're not creating these clones to be hospital candy stripers. <laughs> Goodness, no. With my little extras, like added strength or speed, figured in, these creations are my army, getting me anything or anyone I want. I was so fortunate that you came into the picture without me having to send one of my clones out to fetch you. Why is that? Any other private detective is a mere mortal and can be easily dispatched before posing a threat to my plan for ultimate power. You, however, are not the average bear, are you? Oh, I'm very average. Boringly so. I've heard otherwise. I know from my research how you can be defeated. A bullet to the head, perhaps several. Burning, maybe, and then encasement. You won't be bothering me for some time. Not very ladylike, Doc. Give me your cell phone, Mr. Strange. Don't have one. Hand it over, or I'll order my Loretta to put a bullet in your brain. Here. I thought you'd like the opportunity to see just what I can do before I put you out of my misery. The good doctor pressed a few buttons on the computer beside the giant beaker. A small panel lit up. She opened my cell phone and placed it on the panel. The reddish goo in the beaker began hissing and spitting more. After about a minute, a small platform extended out from underneath it. In the blink of an eye, a motionless clone of me appeared on that platform. Handsome devil, you do good work. No one will ever suspect that Harry Strange would commit a crime. But you will. What extra power shall I gift your clone with? I've always wished I could sing. <laughs> Very amusing. Here's your phone. Don't bother trying to use it. My duplicator automatically renders any harvested phone inoperable. But I just got it. Seeing my last chance, I turned quickly and belted Loretta's double square in the jaw, knocking the gun from her hand and sending her to the floor in a heap. I underhanded my cell phone at the duplicate of Emily Watson, catching her just below the right eye. In surprise, she dropped her cane, which I scooped up and swung into the bubbling beaker like a lumberjack felling a tree. 
The bubbling red goo in the beaker began spilling out, dripping all over my duplicate and silently melting him like a used-up candle. The red stuff began creeping like flowing lava towards Dr. Chase's other clones who did nothing to avoid it. As they likewise began to melt, I ran to the good doctor, bracing the fake Mrs. Watson's cane under her chin. What are you doing? Stopping you. Let go of me. Now! Never! But my creations... Are melting. Don't they have the sense to come in out of the rain? They can only do what I programmed them to do. Listen up, Doc. Here's what you're going to do. First of all, deactivate all your clones. Possible. There must be one main switch that stops them all. Maybe there is. There it better be, if you want to keep breathing. Alright. Alright. Then what? Then we call the authorities. You can't do that. Why not? You must have one working telephone in here. The feds moved in. It took some quick talking to convince them that the melted clones they saw on the floor weren't really people. The warehouse was locked up and Dr. Melanie Chase was taken away to somewhere where she can do no more harm. Beverly Poole is recuperating well, and I hear that Mrs. Watson's doctors are very happy with the progress she's making following her stroke. Now that I've been paid by the real Loretta Poole, I need to go buy a new cell phone. The policy on my old one didn't cover damage caused by cloning machines. Birth of an Angel, written by Tony Serechia, performed by Christine Cole. His shadow fell over me again. I tried to make myself very small, go to the private place in my mind, but he found me there, and then I started screaming. I recognized him from a year ago. He was wearing a raincoat. He said he would save me. He said he could get me out of this hell. But he was the reason they took me. The man in the raincoat stood on one side of me, the man in the big head mask on the other. They were shouting. Raincoat said I was an innocent. Pighead said no one who knows him is an innocent. Then the pighead accused me of being a witch. A witch? This couldn't be happening. No one believes in witches anymore. I went to my private place again. This time, no one followed. Something sharp ripped into my face, tearing me out of my private place. I tried to scream, but my mouth doesn't open. It felt as if my lips were melted into a single piece of flesh. Thoughts hit me at once. How will I be able to breathe? I don't want to die in this farmhouse. My son needs his mother. My breath is ragged and my lungs are starting to burn. No, I can't die. Not like this. I can't. Please, I'm a good person. Why is this happening? I went to my private place. It's warm and safe there, and it smells like peppermint, like my grand's winter coat. I woke up in a car. In the cup holder in the console is a bag of ice with three fingers. My fingers. He, the one in the raincoat, drove. An attractive, dark-haired woman sat in the passenger seat. They were talking about naffs, demons, and ZZ Top. The sight of my fingers floating in the bag took me back a few hours prior. I was driving home from the diner in my big yellow pickup truck. Then, those men, 
with the pig heads, jumped out of the woods. The language they were using, yelling at me, made my head feel as if it were in a vice that was slowly tightening. One of the men, with the pig's head mask, pulled me through the window by my hair, my shirt and skin ripping and tearing on the glass. Then he bit off one of my fingers and spit it at me. They could probably hear my screams in town. The woman in the front seat turned around and touched me, forcing me to go to my private place. I was in a wheelchair. My arms and legs were held in place by Velcro fasteners. I hear snatches of conversation. Outside. Just left her here. She had dark hair. Looked like an old Monte Carlo. Are those her fingers? When I opened my eyes again, I was on a stretcher. Overhead lights zipped by. Light, no light, light, no light, light, no light. We crash through two doors. A team of people in scrubs wait for me. I smell antiseptic. You're safe, Emily. We're going to fix you. Then a mask came down over my face. Count backward from 99. I woke in a hospital bed. Both of my hands were in cast. My face was sore from the surgery. I felt stitches on both cheeks. My only company for the first few weeks was the nurses and the constant beep-boop pattern of the machines that fed me and kept me drugged. During one of my awake periods, I saw a homemade card written in a child's hand on the tray. The folks from the diner sent flowers. I hadn't seen my son in weeks. Children aren't allowed on the ward. A large woman came by and told me I had to sign some papers. She kept belching, filling the room with the smell of rancid bologna. She told me there wasn't any way for Timmy to continue to wait for me, and the state had to take over. The beep-boop machine released another dose of morphine. I signed the papers as best I could and floated to my private place. Weeks later, they moved me to a state-run facility. I didn't have any insurance and couldn't stay at the private hospital. The orderly who stuffed my belongings into a box tore the card my son made. There are two beds in this room. The other one is empty. A doctor came in, and I asked him about Timmy. He said my son was doing fine, but something about the way he said it made me doubt he had any idea. He asked me about the night I was attacked. I told him about the men wearing pig's masks. He made some notes. Then he asked me about the man in the raincoat. He showed me a picture of a man without facial hair. Square jaw, gunmetal gray eyes. It was Harry Strange, the doctor said. That's when the filter in my head shattered. Those weren't pig's masks. They were demons with heads like wild boars, naff demons. The room reeked of brimstone. They thought I was Harry's partner, so they tortured me to get information about Harry. Their leader, Uganar, tore open my shirt. He told me how soft and warm human women were compared to Nafneshni women. He touched me, and then he cut me. Uganar said that unless I took him to Strange, he would cut a part of me off every ten minutes. Then he ripped my little finger off my hand, the doctor wrote in his notebook. I told him after Uganar used his fingernail to split my face, a bright light filled the room. The next thing I remembered was sitting in Harry's back seat, 
He and Carmen were looking for a hospital for me. The doctor says he is prescribing haloperidol for me. I've watched enough Oprah to know that's not good. No, I'm not schizophrenic. I don't need meds. Emily, you're seeing demons. These meds will help you get a better bead on what really happened. That is what happened. The only demons are those we create. I believe something horrific happened to you, men with pig heads. It's obvious to me your mind is manifesting some defense method against the trauma you experienced at the farmhouse. Did anyone check the house? He flipped some pages. They found your truck. The farmhouse was still smoldering. There's still an open arson investigation. I didn't like the accusatory tone he took when he said open. I tapped the photo with the hand that had three fingers remaining. What about him, Harry Strange? He was in your file from the initial investigation. Take a closer look at that picture, Emily. I held the sepia-toned photo. Harry's brill-creamed hair was cropped close above his ears and parted to one side. It was a dorkier haircut than I remember. His narrow black tie disappeared into a brownish vest that matched his jacket and overcoat. I turned the picture over, stamped in the bottom margin, Property Trails and Police Department, ten six sixty six, H Strange. This was the only hit NBI found on Harry Strange. The doctor said, "How could that be? The Harry I saw was in his mid thirties. Maybe this was his father." The doctor put his hand on the door. "I'll send a nurse around with your meds." Doctor, please. They're not necessary. I'll start you on a low dose. They will help you sort things. The nurse who gave me my meds almost had to duck to enter the room. He had a long, jagged scar across his forehead, and his wrinkled shirt flowed like a pirate's sail outside his pants. He picked up my chart from the foot of the bed, his gaze lingering a little too long on my legs. I felt like a prey animal. I covered up with the blanket. You don't have anything I haven't already seen. He handed me a paper cup with four pills, three red, one blue. Are you sure those are all for me? Are you telling me how to do my job? Take the pills. He watched as I swallowed them. Good girl. I'll see you later. The next morning, I felt as if I played frontline for the Huskers. My legs were sore and every muscle throbbed. The day nurse came in. He told me about his girlfriend and their marriage plans. I asked him about the meds I was taking, and he said he would check the charts and get back with me. The day nurse opened the blinds. After he left, I swung my legs over the side of the bed, and I saw a midnight-colored bruise about the size of a quarter on my inner thigh. I checked the bruises I got from the nafs. They were yellow and fading. I looked on the outside of my leg. There were four purple bruises. Harry Strange, episode two ten, cells, was written by Mike Murphy, directed by Tony Serechia, and produced by Brian Ahern. All material is copyright by Tony Serechia and used with his permission. Featured in tonight's cast were Kellen Stennett, Parissa Johnston, Caitlin Van Orden, Catherine Claypool, Emily Jane, Brian Troxell, and Trisha Groves. Birth of an Angel 101 was written and directed by Tony Serechia and produced by Brian Ahern and narrated by Christine Cole. 
All material is copyright by Tony Sarekia and used with his permission. To keep up with the latest news and information on everyone's favorite private investigator, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash harrystrangeradio. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions to producer at harrystrange.com. For comments that may be included on future shows, call the listener hotline at 678-379-8669. That's 678-379-TONY. Harry's opening theme music was written and performed by Lance Hogan and is copyrighted by Lance Hogan and used with his permission. Incidental music and character themes were written and performed by Ryan Lassard and are copyrighted by Ryan Lassard and used with his permission. Contact Ryan at rlassardmusic at gmail.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Kevin McLeod and is copyrighted by Kevin McLeod and used with his permission. Visit incompetech.com for more of Kevin's music. For the Harry Strange Radio Drama, I am Joanne Pruden. Good night. right, friends. Why are you smoking anything other than dromedary cigarettes? That's D-R-O-M-E-D-A-R-Y, dromedary cigarettes. The smoke with only one hump. Regular smokers will tell you that dromedaries are a light smoke, easy on the draw and easy on the throat. In a recent test, regular smokers smoked nothing but dromedaries for 30 days. World-famous throat specialists examined these smokers' throats and reported not one case of throat irritation caused by dromedaries. And why is that, friends? Because the tobacco in dromedary cigarettes is blended with a mixture of eucalyptus, menthol, and dextromethorphan. So, each cool, relaxing smoke coats your throat with the same ingredients as a cough drop. So remember, friends... Dromedary cigarettes are proudly recommended by the American Medical Association. Dromedary cigarettes, the smoke with only one hump. Your doctor smokes them, and so should you. D-R-O-M-E-D-A-R-Y Are you smoking anything else?